Hi folks, this is Brian Moriarty, your Nerds on History co-host. On our podcast, we have shared lots of interesting facts, like the fact that George Washington was a crossdresser and that Thurgood Marshall knew jiu-jitsu. If you find those things insightful and funny, well, have we got a podcast for you. Nerds on Film. It's like the Nerds on History podcast, but with a lot more swear words and no filter whatsoever. Enjoy. Sound check. Sound check. Check one. Check one. Yeah, check two. Check, check, check two. Sound check. You all right? No. I'm I'm on the tail end of the flu and I'm still not feeling very good and I apologize. I hope it just doesn't, you know, I just I'm depleted. My energy is just gone. You'll be fine. Yeah. You will be fine, my friend. A- anyway, anyway, back to the show. While I was sick, I was thinking if you could go back in time and kill anyone from history, preventing, you know, future occurrences from happening, who would you kill? Oh, uh, easy. I would go back and stop Adolf Hitler. Who would you kill? Benjamin Franklin, no doubt. What? Yeah. You're joking, right? No, I'm not joking. Why? He's the reason I'm sick. He invented the modern flu. I mean, who does that? Anyway, why would you take something awful and invent it and make it better? Spell flu. Spell flu. Yes, spell flu. F-L-U-E. F-L-U-E is for the chimney pipe. Benjamin Franklin improved the chimney pipe. He did not invent influenza. Well, well, I hate chimneys, too. Welcome to Nerds on History. I'm Eric Brickmont. And I am Brian Moriarty. Eric, unfortunately, I wish we could say that the bit about you being sick was for the sake of humor, but it's unfortunately true. No, it is true. Yeah, I got the flu on uh, sun- Sunday night. I uh, I woke up in the middle of the night around one in the morning. I had a fever, and I felt awful. I didn't go to bed until like maybe five in the morning. So I had to, I had to call work and be like, "No, I'm, I'm not coming." And I've been fighting it for the past several. In fact, we were supposed to record on Monday, and yep. uh, we've we've had to put it off this long because I've just been. We got damn close to uh missing a week yeah we've never really done that like we've at least notified we did it once i was sick i got really sick uh when we were gonna do the valentine's day episode and i I mean i pulled through i did a i did a quick little solo and you would have been fine if i couldn't make it tonight it's just uh last minute i kind of perked up a little bit folks i have a backup plan for the one at the one time that eric can't make it oh (laughs) i'm just waiting for it because it's gonna be it's going to be so funny when it happens. It's going to be guarantee. absolutely ridiculous. It'll be ridiculous, but it will be worth it. I promise you. Well, we'll leave the listeners with that, then. We're not going to... Yeah, just leave them. Let them... Yeah. I like <laughs> the cryptic speak. It leaves people excited and confused at the same time. <laughs> uh, folks, tonight, I'm going to be earnest here. Uh, Eric and I are best friends, if you haven't figured it out by this point. So we're going to do things a little light tonight. And we're going to do a little bit of edutainment, okay? Right. Our goal is to edutain the crap out of you. Yes, today. absolutely. Brian, Brian's being very kind because I'm not 100% on my game, so we're not going to... We were we wanted to do our part two of Mexican history. Yeah, we have never actually done a part two immediately after the part one. Do you realize no, that? No, that's not true. Science fiction. Our oh, science fiction we episode. Did. We did it back We did back. do that. That's but the, the only one we have but done. But the only reason was because we went on a break. <laughs> True. If we had left it up to us, we would have probably done it just how we're doing it now. We would have done our split. So We probably would have, yeah. 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 But that's all right, because we threw a lot of information in that last episode, and, and our part two is going to be, I think, even more condensed. And, you know, that's a lot 
two weeks in a row. So I think it helps to have a light, lighter, so to speak, episode in between to kind of break things up. And Matt. Martha will be back, and she'll be back when I'm feeling better um, next week to do uh, uh, proper justice to part two of Mexican history. Because, absolutely. We could not do know, the episode yeah. without her. No, absolutely. And, and the way I am right now, it's just like, eh. Anyway, well, listeners, we were thinking, what could we do on a little bit of a lighter side that would be really interesting to you and to us, uh, and maybe kind of go back to our origins a little bit? Because when you and I first set up this podcast, uh, we, we took a little time, and we were thinking about how would we describe it on iTunes and the webpage and all that, and how would we get people interested? And so to facilitate uh, this evening's uh, entertainment slash education, what do you call it? Edu- edutainment. 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 Uh, we have used our donation money to buy an extremely valuable piece of technology, uh, and it's called the Wheel of History. The Wheel of History. Yes. And it will provide us with a few quick topics that we can kind of uh, go into detail about so that uh, you, the listener, can can enjoy and be entertained at the same time. So shall we give it a whirl? I'm a little nervous. All right, the first subject from the Wheel of History is the sandwich. The history of the sandwich. Uh huh. So Brian, you're a bit of a foodie. A bit, yeah, 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 yeah. More, more than a little bit. You're you're an excellent cook, by the way. I, I think your your food's oh, quite you. good. You've, we've had a few nerdonomy get-togethers, and you put together a few things before. It's very good, very good. Uh, so wh- where does the history of the sandwich start? I mean, what does it where does it really come from? Well, so that's actually interestingly debatable. Mm. So uh, I am obsessed with a show on Food Network called Good Eats. Most people should know this by now because it's hosted by Mr. Alton Brown, who likes to take a very uh, Bill and I, the science guy, approach to food, right? If anyone's out there who has not seen it, please check it out. It is so worth it. It's now on the Cooking Channel, which is the the sister channel to the Food Channel now. Wait, 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 wait. There's a Food Channel and a Cooking Channel? Yes. It's just lots of close-ups of ingredients is what the Food Network is all about. No. Um, (laughs) Food Network has since deviated from its cooking show mentality and gone to more food competitions, uh, Uh, reality-based television. Chopped is a big one. So there's still cooking elements to it, but it's much more reality-based. But Uh, I would think that the cooking channel would want to feature the reality-based shows. No, cooking channel is actually now more of the cooking shows. That's the funny thing. See, I would call that the recipe channel. I'm not sure I follow your logic. Or the food preparation channel, as opposed to the cooking channel. But food preparation and cooking are the same thing. Ah, yes, but cooking can be competitive. And food preparation cannot be? Well, it would be two different words for the same thing, but they would have but a that focus That would be quite amusing, I will say. A competition right. for who slices I, I, the most ignore bread. Ignore me, as we are aware, I am on several different cold medications. Let's just... Okay, forgetting keep, this. Anyway, yeah. why is it debatable? Well, because the sandwich gets its name from... I mean, most people know this. The, the Earl, Earl Sandwich. Earl yeah. Sandwich, right. John Montague. As uh, is dated by the Sandwich website. Oh. Yes, Sandwich, of course, is a uh, region in England. So there's actually a site that talks about the history of Sandwich. So as, of course, the story goes, he was playing a game of cards and was asked for something to eat. 
Um, but he did not want to mess up his cards. He didn't want to have to put his cards down because he think he thought he had a winning hand mm. in poker. So they asked for two pieces of bread and some. I think it was probably roast. Was I'm guessing roast beef? Could have even been mutton. I don't know. And they slapped it between the bread and ate it that way. It was a, it was a function, purely function, to make sure that he could eat the meat with his hands without having to get a knife and fork. Hmm. Huh. Yes. Did he win? Uh, history does not know. Ah. It is left to the... Although I guess he did win regardless because he got a sandwich. Though it's interesting is hist- uh, you could have been eating a Portsmouth. What's that? <laughs> so uh, John Montague, according to this site, who was, of course, the fourth Earl of Sandwich, his family could have taken the name Portsmouth as well. Hmm. Sandwich was just a re- region nearby because within the British peerage, you know, at this point in time, there was not uh, a finite set of duchies and counties and right. so forth, right? There were regions, of course. But they would oftentimes kind of mold and change. and Yeah, things things have evolved, right? Because generally speaking, in the British peerage, there is no two different titles for the same region, mm. okay? So, for example, um, Kent. And actually, Sandwich is in Kent now. So... Well, I'm uh, sure it is for anyone named Kent who's enjoying a lovely sandwich. But sure. Please go ahead. Uh, for a long time, the Kent Kent was a county, right? So it was, you know, the Earl of Kent, because they don't have counts in England. They have earls, right? Right. And then cont- countesses for, for, for the females. So, um, but as of, I think, the 19th century, Kent was made into a duchy. So there's there, since that time period, there has not been an Earl of Kent. There's been the Duke of Kent. Instead, uh, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I get you. You saw it's follow the logic now. Mm-hmm. So cool. So is there still an Earl of Sandwich? Uh, that is an excellent question. I don't believe there is. No, I think that the title has since been retired. See, that's a shame because I would imagine the family after the fourth Earl of Sandwich had created the sandwich, they each, you know, descendant would try to one up them by creating a new and more impressive sandwich. <laughs> Just layers upon layers of bread, basically, <laughs> developing. Yes, this is the greatest sandwich ever. I call it the triple club. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, uh, the sandwich, though, obviously, the the legend of the Earl of Sandwich giving it its na- his namesake. Again, also a debatable one. I, I think there's a lot of historians that, that debate the circumstances surrounding it. Certainly, he did. He was a gambler, as we know, and he certainly probably wanted to keep his hands... Uh, fresh from the oils of, of, you know, freshly cooked meat or what have you. But was it this one particular game where he just happened to send off these very specific instructions and brought it back and then said, oh, this is a great idea. Let's spread it all around. I find that kind of dubious. I, I, I don't know if that's true or not. But regardless, people have been putting bread and other things, fixins, if you will, together for thousands upon thousands of years. Yes. Interestingly, and to note, what defines a club sandwich, just want to specify here for a second most people think it's the bacon that makes it a club sandwich because you see a lot of the bacon is an, an element on it but you know i go to these places and i see a club sandwich and i get very uh very angry oh, no. i didn't think it was possible to to harbor rage toward a food item but it happened huh. it happened because bacon does not a club sandwich make here's why the actual middle piece of bread that is in a club sandwich. That piece is called the club. Don't ask me why. I just know it is. 
And it is, in fact, the double-decker nature of a sandwich that makes it a club sandwich, not the ingredients. Oh, interesting. Because you can have a turkey club, you can have a roast beef club, you can have lots of different ingredients that are in a club. You can have a hummus club if you really want to. You can have a club cheese sandwich. By the way, double-decker grilled cheese sandwiches are amazing. (gasps) Ooh. Even more amazing with bacon, but that's not the point. It's not about (laughs) the bacon. It's about the extra bread in in the middle. That is interesting. I wonder why it is called a club. Well, I guess it was originally developed as a clubhouse sandwich, so I'm guessing it was just, you know... Oh, so they're calling it a clubhouse, like a, a you know, like a, a parlor. It, it, well, isn't that true, though, that the sandwich itself was, as it became more popular in the 1600s and 1700s, it... it sure, it became, it, it became commoner's food, right? Exactly. Yeah. And it was, it was oftentimes associated with people who would sit around in clubs playing cards, just like the, the, the Earl sandwich and what yeah. have you. Uh, and it kind of gained this notoriety as being a simple man's food or beneath many people. Sure. And the sandwich has shared a long and interesting history because lots of food items developed from the sandwich. The grilled cheese sandwich, a total American convention, was developed because of the Great Depression, right? It was people need a cheap meal that they could fill their family up on. So what's cheaper than bread, butter, and cheese? Nothing is the answer, right? Because it's very, very inexpensive to throw together. Well, think about the the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. That was, again, born right out of the Depression. Uh, in fact, it was Kellogg, uh, of the famous Kellogg's, the, the cereal maker. The cornflake people. The cornflake people, as they are known. Um, they went ahead and created the very first peanut butter. And that was in, in or around 1920. And it was actually considered to be a health food at the time. Well, um, peanut butter can actually be a health food. It depends on, on well, who depends you Well, it depends on how to. you make it, yeah. Uh, and how you make it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. How much sugar you dump into it. Yeah, if you have real peanut butter, true peanut butter, there's no high fructose corn syrup. It's just pulverized peanuts, basically. Right. And a little bit of oil. But after a little while, it kind of lowered in price and became less of a health food and a more uh, luxury item and became more of a common item. And it was during the Great Depression that people started making peanut butter sandwiches and adding then sweetened jams and jellies to it uh, to create this very famous food. Um, I find it interesting, though, that it has taken on a whole new life of its own, and after a while, kind of became almost exclusively associated with children for such a long time, because it was really the first sandwich that you could make where you were not very likely to injure yourself. Because once sliced bread had become common and started to be sold in a sliced form, children, all they would need is a you know a little butter knife, and they could use that to spread the jam and, and jelly on it, and there you go. They didn't have to get another knife out and cut off pieces of meat and turkey and things like that that you needed a sharper knife for. And therefore, children could start making it easily. Uh, I've read an interesting statistic that the average child, as they grow up into an adult from the ages of you know around 10 or so to the time that they graduate from high school, will have consumed 1,500 peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in their life. Wow, that's kind of shocking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, as a kid, hated peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Well, you were a strange child. I was, and I thought it was the peanut butter that I didn't like. It turns out it was actually the jelly that I didn't like. You're a very strange child. It was the combination of the jelly and the bread I didn't love. I didn't like it at all. But peanut butter now, I actually very much enjoy. I actually like the good old-fashioned Elvis Presley deal, which is the, the peanut butter and banana sandwich. Though, of course, he grilled his. He actually made the fried peanut butter and banana. Ooh. And I heard he put bacon on it, too, actually. I don't know if that's true or not. Yeah. Not a big surprise how he died. Anyway. <laughs> well, well, we could talk about that a whole other episode. Because uh, it wasn't the peanut butter and banana sandwiches. It was the drugs. Well, but I think it was honestly a combination of both. Probably, yeah. The peanut I mean, butter. He, he had ballooned up quite a bit. Yeah. The peanut wait. butter, banana, and crack sandwiches are not good for you. <laughs> well. Uh, 
Anyhow, we'll leave, we'll leave that to another episode. Like we I apologize said. to our listeners in Memphis. That's yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> anyhow, the modern sandwich obviously is, is is a very interesting topic. Though I find its ancient origins to be equally as interesting, to be honest. And for me, I mean, quite honestly, the the first sandwiches. I mean, we must have been gone back until the very first production of bread. Uh, I, I'm sure they were very, very simple, and I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of them were being consumed in the Near East. Because when you think of flatbreads, right, you think of regions in uh, North Africa, you think of regions in the Levant, uh, you also think of India. And you think about the production of the flatbread, like the pita, for example, it's very easy to fold and move around and create into like a wrap. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, people have been using bread to shovel food into their mouth for thousands and thousands of years. Oh, sure. It makes sense that somebody would have been like, God, I just feel lazy. I'm just going to put everything inside and just chow down on that. Well, even the English. Think about it. Pocket pies. Pocket pies. Pocket pies, dude. Pocket pies. You know, hot pockets. I'm familiar with the hot pocket. Of course we are, because we're We're Americans. And we're nerds. (laughs) And we're nerds, of course, right? The Hot Pocket is just a pocket pie. That's all it is. It's a market, highly marketed and different shape than a pocket pie. A pocket pie, no, hand, sorry, hand pie, I should say, not a pocket pie. A hand pie was the original concept of pie, too. Hmm. It was not meant to be in a deep dish with the crust and everything like that. That came later. Uh, hand pies were much easier to make because you just rolled dough together. You throw in a savory element, some sort of meat, generally. And if you were actually, if you were clever, you did one half meat, one half sweet. So you'd have both dinner and dessert in one. But it was actually meant to be, it was lunch food. It was essentially, if you think about it, just a sandwich. You, you baked it all together into one item because, I mean, you're surrounded by a very bread-like uh, element. So, yeah, I mean, this concept of using some sort of bread to take in food, you're right, goes back much, much earlier. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That. And I don't know the exact time of the sandwich, but I, well, let's say... Uh, restoration period, so we're talking the 1600s, I think. We're talking about the modern sandwich. Yes, the modern sandwich. The one that was developed by John Montague okay. was developed in um, the late 1600s or so. Again, right after the restoration of the English monarchy. Eric, can I take a turn at the wheel of history? Sure. Here we go. The hamburger. That's uh, odd. Isn't that... That's pretty close to the sandwich. Let's just go with it. Let's just go with it. My grandfather always said this. Do not argue with the wheel of history. Let me ask you, sir. When and where was the hamburger invented? Well, not unlike the sandwich. This is highly debated, of course. It is not highly debated. I believe it is. And it here's is not. the debate. It is not. You're going you're gonna to reach out to its namesake of Hamburg, Germany. No, nope, I'm not. And the Salisbury Steaks. Nope, I'm not. I'm going to say that hamburger steak has a derivative in, English, in German cuisine, but there is a definitive time and place for the birth of the hamburger. Yes, they're called the Mongol hordes that invaded Russia. <laughs> All right, I'd like to hear your argument for this. Go ahead. 
So the uh, the Mongol hordes, the Mongol horsemen. Now they were Mongols, but they they would just collect tons and tons of things, and they would just they would never throw them away. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong kind of hoarding. Um, the Mongol invaders, uh, led by Genghis Khan, who invaded much of Eastern Europe, including Russia and Ukraine and what have Kazakhstan, you. of course, mm-hmm, exactly. Yes. Uh, they were oftentimes on horseback, as they were known for, and they would produce a type of a ground up. Uh, horse meat uh, that was made into like little cooked fillets and then they would hold on to those in their in their packets and their in their satchels and when they were oftentimes on the run or on the move and they didn't want to stop and set up camp and eat they'd have these little preserved meat patties that they would just take right out of their satchel and, and eat on horseback while they were riding uh, and they were little hamburgers okay hang on let's yeah. take a, let's take a step back for a second though but but just just okay. think about it for a moment. I, I think it because is, think it about is where they invaded. In. Because it was actually Genghis Khan's grandson uh, when he invaded Kublai Moscow. Khan, correct? Uh, yes, uh, Kublai Khan. All right. Uh, well I done. I was talking about. <laughs> uh, he he invaded Moscow uh, and he brought these mincemeat horse burgers with him, and they became uh, steak tartare. I just think that's a that's a lovely conversation to be having with like with Marco Polo or something when he comes and meets him. <laughs> oh my god. This is amazing. Where is it? Oh yes, it's uh, it is ground up horse meat. Oh, mm-hmm. lovely. <laughs> but think about it. Um, may I have a napkin, please? Essentially, essentially, Genghis Khan was the original Hamburglar. He was. Oh dear God, <laughs> we went there, didn't we? <laughs> Not only did we make a bad pun, but now we were going to get sued by the McDonald's Corporation. <laughs> you know, I'm finally starting to feel a little bit better. <laughs> At my <laughs> medicine's starting to kick in now. <laughs> okay, but okay. no, I mean, I think it makes perfect sense because here's this little, uh, these little mincemeat patties, which is essentially what a hamburger really is. I mean, obviously, there's mm. there's there's bread put along with it now, but the origin of the type of meat that is ground up and, and made into the hamburger. I think has its origin with Genghis Khan, and it's no surprise then that oh, Eastern not... Europe, including Germany, would then develop a very similar patty or, or type of food, um, and, and not surprising after after the Mongol invasion. Sure, and you know I won't argue that, but there are plenty of other food items that use ground meat. Schnitzel, which is common in I guess I, I want to say Yiddish cuisine. I could be wrong. Schnitzel is very, very common in most German yeah, cuisine. And which is, yeah. no, Yiddish Yiddish has basis in there, yeah. too. So, so sure, schnitzel. I think, like, Germany and Poland and, and the regions around there, yeah. Yeah, so there's there's a ground meat patty there uh, as well. I mean, hell, meatloaf. Meatloaf is just a big thing. A big, and that's what it is. That's the best way to say it, is a thing. It is a, a mass yeah, of ground meat. it's a loaf meat. of meat. Exactly. Meatloaf, yeah. And depending on your, on the burger recipe, some people actually do put egg in the burger to hold it together. Not necessary, by the way, if you do it right. But let's fast forward a little bit, though, because while I don't debate the origin of the meat patty coming from the Mongolians, because they were very good at portable food, uh, as we know. Well, you had to be. Yeah. They're very good at portable everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I've always wanted a yurt. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> a what? A yurt. What's a yurt? A yurt is a, is a Mongolian tent. 
that you live in that's totally portable that you can then move. Well, it's not completely portable. It's meant to be more of a permanent structure, but you can move it if need be and and, and be rather nomadic with it. The nomadic people, nomadic herdsmen of Mongolia use yurts oh, okay, to live cool. in. Good to know. And they're like really fantastic tents. And I've always wanted one. The things you know, the things, <laughs> the things you learn when you sit down with Eric Brickmont. <laughs> so what I will say is that uh, the hamburger sandwich, which is the formal title of the hamburger, right. is derived from a particular type of meat patty called hamburger steak. Okay. Okay. Which, Fair enough. Which therefore has its its origins in Hamburg, Germany. Yeah. Yes. yes. However, the actual hamburger is a completely American convention as well. Right. Well, the sandwich was English in its origins. The hamburger is American. Uh, one of our few cultural contributions to world culture. Uh, <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa! There's a handful. There's a handful. <laughs> Declaration of Independence. Uh, well, actually, no, we stole well, that from like, French. No, but like world world culture wise, you know, we have little bits. Like in music, we we gave it jazz. In the arts, we gave it musical theater. In literature, we gave them comic books. In sports, we gave them baseball. And in food, we gave him the hamburger. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not knocking American culture at all. I'm just saying that thinking of the mountains of contributions made by other European cultures and other cultures world cultures. Around the world. Yeah, yeah. Yes, all right, fair ours, enough. Ours are about pretty slim pickings compared. All right, okay? all right. Fair enough. Fair, fair enough. enough. We okay. haven't been around that long. That's true. We're young. We're yeah. teenagers we're as far young. as the world's concerned. We're, 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 we're more like tweens, really. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Do you know the location of when the first hamburger was made my guess is a kitchen <laughs> what clued you in <laughs> <laughs> no i don't know well the location um actually harkens back to the land of my ancestors by ancestors i mean my my extended family uh new haven connecticut actually oh. yeah and my family is actually not from new haven but they're from connecticut another, uh, they're from connecticut exactly yeah uh and it comes comes from a restaurant called lewis's lunch which was established in 1895 you can actually go to lewislunch.com, and they are still open to this day. They've been open for 118 years. How crazy is that, dude? Hmm. 118 wow. years. Pretty wild. And uh, their version of the hamburger is pretty unconventional when it comes down to how the hamburger has evolved. Because their hamburger is served on toasted bread. It is not served on a bun. They also serve on it with, the, with some fresh tomato. They actually put onion with the burger when they grill it. And here's the weird thing. They grill it sideways. How does that work? So they've got this weird little clamping apparatus that's got grill grills on either side of it. So they clamp the burgers in that way, and then they clamp slices of onion right to the top of the burger. So when they close the apparatus shut, everything stays right right there. And they do it sideways to get drip the drippings off. So, But you grill the onion with the... Mm. Uh, yeah, you grill that's the onion. That's a good idea. It's a very good idea. So they take that off. They put some spread on there, which I think is, I think it's mustard. I'm not sure, but some sort of spread, tomato, toasted bread. That's it. And that is what they believe is, and what Lewis's lunch will insist upon being a true hamburger. Everything else is an imitation. All right. I, I have another claim that I'm reading here that the uh, Texas historian Frank Talbert actually attributes the invention of the hamburger to a gentleman by the name of Fletcher Davis in Austin, Texas. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's believed to have sold hamburgers in his cafe on 115 Taylor Street in Athens uh, in the late 1880s and actually brought it with him to the 1904 St. Louis World Fair. In I fact, have McDonald's, heard this argument as well. McDonald's claims that the very first burger was from an unknown inventor, 
but who brought it to that same World's Fair in 1904. So, 1904. 1904. Yeah, this is going this is going back to earlier than that though. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think there 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 could be several people who who would be uh, in the running, so to speak, for the because you said it was ni- it was 19- well, it says the late 1980s. We don't know exactly when that is. Well, okay. So regardless, it doesn't really matter. I mean, I, I think the first probably official term or usage of the hamburger and on a on a permanent menu is very much lo- most likely at Lewis's lunch. So I, I I believe that. I'm just saying. I think that there's probably multiple contributors. I'm, I'm sure yes. there was somebody at some point, probably out on the western frontiers of America, who just sat down in front of a campfire and had some baked beans and toast and thought, you know, it'd be great. I got some meat in here. Maybe I'll cook this up too, and made essentially kind of like a hamburger. Very possible. And of course, hamburgers became popular during the Depression as well because you know, ground meat is usually easier, cheaper to to eat right. than steak. Of course, would be sure. And you can add whatever you want in the ground meat. You could add all different qualities of meat in the ground meat mm-hmm. and add whatever flavoring you want to it, essentially. And that's why we don't mind eating Burger King, even though it's a grade D meat or oh, F God, meat or Z meat. meat. I think it's grade Z meat now. Do they have a grade Z now? I think I think they had to invent it because of, of the quality of the meat. I think that it... it well, it's also yeah. not entirely all meat now, too. A lot of fast food restaurants cut their meat with tofu as well. I don't mind that. Some people do. Uh, if I want a burger, I want a burger. So I go to In-N-Out. <laughs> I want it still moving. If you guys, it. by the way, don't know what In-N-Out is, I mourn for you because it is a <laughs> it is a West Coast burger joint and it is phenomenal. It is pretty amazing. And I, I'm sure there's listeners outside of the United States who don't know it either. But if you ever visit the Western United States, please so I Google seeing, an In-N-Out burger. Eat it. It's a, it's, it, it will love you forever. I'm going to do a little cultural reference to our fans in Ireland because uh, my family and I were going to see a band called the Saw Doctors. Saw Doctors are a rock group. They are huge in Ireland. I'm familiar with them. We were just talking about this with our friend at work the other day. We were indeed. Uh, we, they were playing in San Francisco of all places. Uh, they were touring through the, through the United States and they, they had written a song because they had just had In-N-Out Burger and it was that religious of an experience to them. <laughs> I remember this is it, and I'm going to do a horrible Irish accent. See if excuse me. My next song, I'm going to dedicate to the In-N-Out Burger that I just had. <laughs> and for those in the world who have not been to the United States and want to experience what true American food is like, go to In-N-Out because it is a true callback to the nature of what fast food was like in the 1950s. You know, when you go, when you went to the McDonald's in 1955, when when McDonald's opened. This is the burger that's very close to that style of hamburger, right? So anyway, uh, moving forward, speaking of the 1950s, that was when I think the burgers really caught on as the fast food craze that they really were, right? Right. Because McDonald's really capitalized on the cheap, quick hamburger in the 50s. Then, of course, Burger King took over, I think, in the 60s. And there, that's when the food wars really began for fast food dominance. Or it might have actually even been the 70s. For Burger King, I can't remember for for sure, but really the competition stiffened in the seventies because then you got Burger King and Wendy's and all the other competitors to come around. Absolutely, folks. I don't think we need to talk the hamburger much about it much more. I think we, you guys get the idea. Well, then shall we uh, spin the wheel of history and see what else comes up? Yes, you take a try. This. Cheese in a can. Oh my god. I, is, is there, there something... like a switch in this thing? Because I, I think it's all stuck on food for some uh, reason. I will... Hold on a second. All right. I'm, I'm sure the next one will be fine. But let's just 
cheese in a can. Yeah, let's, just, let's just do it. How appetizing. Hey, man, don't knock cheese in a can. Uh, I remember in high school, I did a... Do you know why? Because it knocks back, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> it sure does. I did a um, a little video project for an English class that we, I think... I think it was an English class. I don't remember exactly what it was. But it involved me getting dressed up uh, in my suit and putting on this large beard that I had that we had uh, powdered white. Uh, and I was playing some Austrian... I don't know what it was. I, I was channeling Freud for a while, so maybe it was a psychologist or something like that. I don't remember exactly what it was. All I remember is absolutely ridiculous and hilarious. And in order to to get through it and try to to try to make it seem as believable as possible, we had to have the proper provisions, which included two boxes of Ritz and uh, several cans of Cheese Whiz. And that that's pretty much all we ate that evening trying Wait, to get so this done. Cheese Whiz or spray cheese? Because there's a difference. Oh, excuse me, excuse me. The the easy cheese, easy cheese. Easy cheese. Easy cheese. Yeah. Horrible name for a food right. item, by the way. And I remember that the at the end of the evening, we were all so exhausted and tired that, that everyone just left. And several of the cans of the easy cheese uh, were left behind. And I proceeded to consume them. Apparently, I wasn't supposed to because the, the people I was working with on the project, two of them got very upset that I had eaten their easy cheese. And that became uh, the whole basis of a certain sense of animosity that this gentleman and I had in high school for the rest of high school. What, he continued to bring it up that Over I had eaten his can easy cheese. of fake cheese. Fair enough. There were two cans left. But, you know, if you bring easy cheese to someone's home and you leave it there, you would expect that, you know, it's fair game, right? Yeah, I think I, I would agree with that. to bring you your cheese in the, in, the, in the morning. And I did all the acting in the actual video. I had the hard job. I had to dress up like a fool. So I think it was, you know... I think I was justified in the consumption of said easy cheese. And I did them a favor, mind you. The horrid, horrid amounts of salt and preservatives that are in those things. Oh, Lord. I took a bullet for this guy. As you can see, it still literally kind of stabs. The, the, the preservatives actually <laughs> formed into a bullet <laughs> as they were working away through your digestion. And actually, you know, it, it, uh, it, it left a deep scar in me, as you can tell him. I'm a little disturbed about this. This, of course, is not the history of of this <laughs> of easy cheese. This is just the history of, of me and my involvement. Your own with easy personal cheese. history. Your, yes. Your your checkered history with easy cheese. <laughs> Honestly, so tell me, Eric, please. When did this unholy union of cheddar solids and aerosol come together? Uh, common misconception: It's actually not aerosol. If it was an aerosol, it would just. Pss- spray out all over the place okay um no the the so-called aerosol cheese has nothing to do with it It, it's actually uh combined with a little propellant and then that is put into a container with a piston uh and a barrier plastic cap and then when you squeeze it it forces out the the same concept that's used for whipped cream in a can exactly the same thing only it's cheese in a can and it's it's cheese in a very very and you don't have to refrigerate easy cheese i think you can keep I think it will survive through most nuclear holocaust. I think it, 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 yeah, it's 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 interesting stuff. And it was created, no surprise, then in the 1960s uh, by Nabisco, uh, who advertised it as the snack mate. Interesting. And it was this quick, easy snack food that you could spray out onto a cracker uh, and consume, and without any concern for your health. Interesting. Now we're getting into one of the areas of expertise that I wouldn't really say it's expertise, but a passion of mine. Which is food. Uh, we don't we don't talk about that very much. No, we don't. I mean, you you are the foodie of uh, the group. Do you do you know where Nabisco gets its name from? <sighs> no, I believe it was an uh, not an acronym, but a uh, a shorthand for the North American Biscuit Company. Oh, 
because they were originally, they made cookies. That makes sense. Which makes sense because, of course, Oreos, right? Nabisco. Uh, let me actually look it up just to be absolutely sure. Oh, God. Could you just imagine if those two development teams have gotten confused? The oh, Easy God. Cheese team and the, and the Oreo team? <laughs> so... Chocolate sure. cheese filled cookies and frosting in a can. <laughs> frosting in a can is not a bad idea, but the ooh, cheese and chocolate. Not no. until you find out what the, what that frosting is made of. <laughs> then you're like, mm, no, thank you. <laughs> not to discourage people from having Oreos. Or the Oreo cookie part is amazing. The frosting, nah, I could I could do it without the frosting. Really? I think the frosting makes an Oreo cookie. Without the frosting, you have no Oreo cookie. You just have two chocolate cookies. Yeah, that's fine with me. It's not fine with me at all. Oh, no, 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 no. Do you really I, want me... Can I just say what they're made out of? Sure. Crisco and confectioner sugar. That's literally what it's made out of. What the hell's wrong with that? You're saying it like it's a bad thing. Yeah. Hook All up right. an IV. All right. Throw it in me. <laughs> I'm down. And it was nice knowing you, sir. <laughs> I'm sorry. The National Biscuit Company. National, not North American. Ah. Close enough, though. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense, though. They, they probably would not be in Canada So, so they, well. they took the first syllable of each word. Na for national... Bis for biscuit and k for company. <laughs> well, co for company. Co is the. I was trying the, to be funny. Well, oh, we're fine. You were funny. I'm just saying. Thank you, Eric. I, I think you should do that. that for more things. I should only half pronounce things. <laughs> yeah. Oh, or just put the words together. Yeah, I think Kentucky Fried Chicken should be confrachic. <laughs> <laughs> right? That'd be great. Confutra. <laughs> KFC, who cares? Kafatra. Now that gets people's attention. The Taco Bell couldn't work. Takba. 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 The Takba Company. Be great. Yeah. Jack in the Box would be the same, though, because it's all monosyllabic. So. <laughs> <laughs> can we move on? Is sure. that cool? Continue on with your story of cheese in the can. Uh, that's it. That's it. That's really, I mean, honestly, there's really nothing more to it. It's pretty simple. Is that people wanted a quick form of cheese or cheese substitute, and this is what they got. Mm-mm-mm. It, it does go darn good on a cracker, but not much Not much else. Well, getting back to sandwiches, I, I think that the in Philadelphia, if you go to Philadelphia, you can actually get a... Cheese Whiz, not cheese, not easy but cheese. But practically the same thing. No, 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 no. No, Cheese Whiz is a cheese spread that is jarred. Oh. And but Cheese not... Whiz is also made by the same company, though. Uh, Probably. It is. Yeah. yeah. Well, Kraft makes Cheese Whiz, I believe. Oh. Well, that's not made by the same company. Yeah. Um, but it's pretty much the same thing in my mind. Yeah, Cheese Whiz is essentially nacho cheese which is without the spice. Right. It. It's the same... Consistency and flavor. liquid. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, but since we're talking about it, since we're talking about... Hey, we're talking about sandwiches, let's talk about the Philly Cheesecake for a second. Regional classic was actually developed in Philadelphia. We're used to having more of an Italian take on it here with um, sliced up steak and provolone cheese. Uh, and, of course, you have to have grilled onion with it as well. Rick Pepito, our good friend who was on our podcast a few weeks ago, please confirm this for us over Twitter. Uh, cheese Whiz, is it actually common on the Philly cheesesteak sandwiches in Philadelphia? Because I was under the impression it was, but I've also seen some variation. So please help us out there. Thank you much, sir. Uh, continuing on, let me give the wheel another try, shall we? Go for it. Oh, well, um, I <laughs> I do know that they make them flavored. However, this is not an, an edible, thank God, I guess. Uh, condoms. Interesting. Huh. Uh-huh. Where the hell did you say you bought this Wheel of History from? Uh, a, a, a guy. I just, he, was on, he was on Craigslist. Yeah. Yeah. It was yeah. only five bucks. 
shocking. <laughs> Anyhow, it was a right. good deal. It was a good deal. I, I, like I said, I, I can never argue with the wheel of history. As my grandfather always said that. Never argue. Always said that. Never Those argue. Those were his dying words, actually. Well, almost his dying words, but they were just before his dying words. Okay. Yeah, his dying words were. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but before that, always trust the wheel of history. Always trust the wheel of history. Uh. Exactly. Yes. Okay. Now that we have it quoted, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> so, tell us, Eric, since you seem to be uh, at the ready for this. <laughs> where tell us the origins of the condom yes <laughs> the condom interestingly enough it goes um, back to ancient egypt <laughs> no it doesn't it actually precedes ancient egypt they did have condoms in ancient egypt however but uh this goes back further Thirteen thousand bce really you have heard uh, and we think we've actually talked about this before uh grew de crumboles it's the uh, famous the cave paintings de in whatever it is the famous cave paintings in france that are prehistoric that date back many thousands of years the yes the first drawings that we know of well they're not the first drawings we have petroglyphs going back much further than that and, and oh, you know. fine well i'm just saying if you go down in australia you know, the aborigines have been doing that for forty thousand years for a while years. it was conceived of those some of the earliest drawings it is some of the most early um depictions that are of of a very advanced nature they are extraordinarily detailed in their in their depictions including showing the coverings over a man's penis while having sex with a woman and they are very intentional in their depiction of something being wrapped around the first reference of wrapping it up so to speak uh in history is painted on these walls so you know it, it is definitely something that we know of from ancient history right so once we we do move forward in history and we actually start recording or writing down the events that are happening around us we we see the use of condoms uh actually starting uh as you mentioned in egypt and other places in the near east and they were used as a boiled sheep intestine uh, that then had a kind of elasticity to them and a strength behind them, and they could be sewn up on the end piece or tied off on the end, uh, and were apparently somewhat effective. I don't think terribly effective. I mean, I'm sure that there was definitely a, a certain percentage of, of possibility that was pretty high at the time, but it, it would have been better than nothing at all. Gotcha. And that was kind of the basis for a long period of time, right? The whole idea of using uh, animal intestine as the skin for the condom well animal intestine was one method um the the chinese actually used oiled silk paper uh and they would kind of sheath it if you will uh and it was uh again somewhat effective uh better than nothing at all um but uh you'll find that for many religions that forbode any kind of use of of contraceptive condoms were for a while anyhow during the middle ages kind of on their way out at least in europe they, they weren't as popular uh you'll find that it wasn't until about the 1500s uh, where you have suggestions of condoms kind of coming back in and actually as a method of fighting syphilis uh, it was suggested that by using a condom because it was identified as being a sex sexually transmitted disease really i think it's probably the first sexually transmitted disease ever recorded and spoken the first about one we've been able to do identify yeah i think yeah and as as such you have that becoming much more popular uh in fact it was an italian doctor in 1564 gabriel Fallopio, uh ironically uh who went ahead and suggested that as a means of of combating syphilis um hmm. it, in fact in the 1660s uh, you find that the English Birth Rate Commission actually ascribed falling birth rates to the use of what were, uh, you know, coined at the time, condons. 
condoms. So condom somehow evolved from that. That's the first recorded use of the word uh, was in the 1660s in, in England. Okay. Uh, and these animal skin uh, intestines then kind of came back into popularity and you actually have them um, surviving in some cases from the leftovers of the English Civil War. Um, you have the remnants of some of them found left over in you know, old latrines that were covered up. Uh, some of them that may have actually been used by the troops of King Charles I. So, you know, there is precedence for them being used at this time. There's actual archaeological examples of these discarded condoms through history. Mm -hmm. Yes, us archaeologists, we have a lot of fun sometimes. <laughs> you yeah, never know what you're going to find. Well, our, all archaeology is is going through people's garbage. Just people who's been dead for a long time, so they don't care. Yeah. Yeah, essentially that's what it is. But eventually condoms became... Uh, much more useful uh, and a lot more effective once the discovery of rubber was made. And with rubber, um, more sp specifically the vulcanization of rubber, uh, you found the ability to create these truly rubber reusable condoms that could be cleaned and washed out and, and used again. Uh, and they are almost exactly the same in design as the modern condom is today. Uh, and we can thank the creators of Goodyear Tires who in 1839 created the very first rubber condoms. Get out. True enough. Goodyear created the first rubber condoms. Wow. Yeah, you'll never look at the Goodyear blimp the same way again. I'll never look at the guy from the... Oh, that's the Michelin Man. Never mind. I was going to say... I was going to say... But wait, no. So forget what I was going to say. But yeah, the blimp, absolutely not. Wow. How do we... How did we get that, that size? Well, we had a few leftovers. We just... We wanted to really test out what happened. We just kept blowing air into it. <laughs> <laughs> that is how the very first uh, Goodyear blimp came into existence. Uh, for a long time then, uh, for many years, almost 100 years, that was the, the preferred material for condoms. That was until the 1920s when latex was invented. Uh, and that allowed the... Uh, Sexual revolution to begin. There but that go. was it. You know, cheap contraception. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, in the 1920s, that would have been right about the, the time for it, really. Mm -hmm. uh, and you'll find that the, the Young's Rubber Company was the very first to manufacture latex condoms, which were later sold as Trojans. Oh. Uh, it would be a few years later that the uh, first European company to make uh, latex condoms, the London Rubber Company, uh, would trademark them under the name Durex. And these uh. are both condom uh, manufacturers that still exist to this very day. Interesting, very interesting. But the company, so the brand name was just the name of the of the product, but rather the the company behind it was just right a company who was making rubber or latex. Exactly, and very if you think about it, it makes perfect sense that they would kind of want a a brand to be much more recognizable than the actual company that was making it. Of course, uh, especially if you're a respected rubber or latex company who's producing you know gloves and other rubber materials. Well, I mean, sure, because you're talking about England, and England is at this point in time very Anglican. Right, which is still heavily influenced by Catholic theology, and even though they were didn't have to follow strictly uh, the church teaching from Rome, there was still a pretty much a cultural acceptance that premarital sex would have been bad, and that a condom was indicative of some sort of promiscuous. Mm, we here in America might think that the the British would be a little bit more prudish, if you will, not to offend our British listeners in any way, shape, or form. But in fact, in 1955, 60% of married British couples were using condoms, whereas only 42% of American couples were using them. Right, but these were developed in the early 1920s, is what you're... 
Sure, yeah. But what I'm saying, though, is that their adoption in Europe was actually much stronger than it was here in America, uh, and in particular in England. So it was actually the English who embraced the condom a lot more than uh, well, sure, later on. Yeah, I I think I'm speaking to the the era more than just the trend. Hard to say. Yeah. Uh, So I do find it very interesting, though, that there were actually laws in place in the 1960s, and before that, obviously, that outlawed birth control. Uh, France and Italy... Uh, among them, and including also the Republic of Ireland, uh, which actually was the very last one in recent memory to get rid of anti-condom laws in 1993. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and as such, uh, the, the condom has been embraced by world cultures around. Well, this has been delightfully awkward. It has, hasn't it? Yes. Oh, God, let's hope the next one is better. Here we go. A little nervous. The origin of the universe. Thank God, finally, a real topic. (laughs) And a huge topic. I think way way more to cover than a small snippet. If only there was a book that was the brief history of the universe. Oh, and if only there was somebody out there who would write it. Maybe, gosh, Stephen sounds like such a great name. That would be the perfect name for someone like that, wouldn't it? Of course, we're talking about Stephen Hawking. Yes, indeed. Who put together so, a very famous book by that um, very title. Eric, Eric, you are actually very much an astronomy buff. And most common accepted theories behind the origin of the universe that we use in our modern culture are scientifically derived. But let's take a step back, though, because every culture has a creation story that describes how the world came to be. Our modern culture is no different than that, because all we've managed to do is apply empirical data to support our understanding of how the universe came into being. But every culture has taken its understanding of the world around them and used that as their way of describing how the the world came to be, right? Absolutely. And you'll find that when we look at all the data that's out there, when we study all the various elements that exist in the universe and everything that makes up everything around us, uh, it it actually kind of allows us to trace everything back one step at a time, going back to what makes this and what made that and what made that and so on and so on and so on as we go back further and further and further away. And when we do that, we actually build up a picture of what the early universe must have looked like. And it was a very different place than it is right now. How exactly that universe came to be, that that pivotal moment that so-called created it, is up to a lot of different interpretation and debate, right? But the current theory surrounding it suggests that there was a single point approximately 14 billion years ago in which more or less everything that exists in the universe right now, all the matter and everything that was there, was condensed into a a finite, very uh, simple, very uh, condensed point. And through a violent explosion, everything expanded very, very rapidly, so rapid that it actually traveled faster than the speed of light. And it did so for a short time and then began to kind of slow down, but then kind of picked up again and has slowly been um, expanding faster and faster and faster since that very moment. And the first few uh, million years of the universe's existence, I mean, everything was extremely hot, so very hot that there really wasn't much in existence. There wasn't much going on, but it allowed for the very 
first creation of, uh, you know, the very first protons, the very first neutrons, and the very first uh, electrons. And those were the, the key building blocks that would then lead to the most abundant element in the universe being created, which is hydrogen, uh, along with trace elements of helium and lithium. Uh, and these gas clouds, these giant clouds of these primeval soups, if you will, of the universe, uh, would later coalesce through a process called gravity. So as you had these certain points of, of gravitational pull bringing everything together, it created the very first stars. And these stars were made up of everything that exists in the universe. All those elements existed in these stars. And they were huge. They were massive. And they, they as the common phrase goes, they, uh, they were like rock stars, okay? They would uh, live large but die young. And they would explode in these process called supernova. And they still go on today. Supernova happen in, in our galaxy and in other galaxies, and we observe them on a pretty, pretty regular basis. In fact, uh, I've bumped elbows and, and met some of the, uh, the key astronomers in the world who are behind all of this. Uh, really? Well, my father is on the board of directors at Lick Observatory. And as such, uh, I've had the opportunity to meet several very famous astronomers over the years who have been involved in many, many different uh, formations of these ideas and theories and confirmation of a lot of them uh, through their through their work. And it's been a real privilege of mine, actually, to be able to, to chat with these folks and get to know them, um, at least on a very limited basis. You know, I talk to them from every once in a while. But with that comes in my case anyway, a little bit of a better understanding of just how incredible the universe really is. Because if you think about that that moment of creation, that moment of expansion, and everything that it led to and everything that we are today, it's, it's a miracle that life can even exist in such a strange and hostile place that is the universe. Hmm. Because things have cooled down now a lot. And stars are a lot smaller. They're a lot friendlier, if you will. And stars like ours that we live around uh, will never have those violent explosions. In fact, less and less stars are going to be having supernova as time goes on, just because there are less of these supermassive stars that are out there. And if you think about what a supernova is, it really is just kind of emulating the birth of the universe. Because these stars explode, and when they do so, they oftentimes leave behind all of the uh, all that was of their star. It kind of gets cast out into the into the into the galaxy, and it then coalesces into smaller stars that are more stable and cooler. Uh, and so it goes through that same process, this kind of rebirth. And our star, when the time finally comes, won't go supernova, but it will just continue to expand and expand and expand, and eventually just expel everything that it is in a much less violent process than you would uh, encounter with a supernova. And for a long time, people thought, okay, well, if you had a big bang, what would happen then when you had this kind of critical mass happen, when all of the mass and everything, all of the matter in the universe would expand, wouldn't it come to a point where it would then kind of come back together and coalesce? And there was this theory that went around for a long time called the big crunch and the idea was that everything would come back together. And when it did so, there'd be another large violent explosion and the universe would kind of recycle itself and there'd be another big bang. And that we could very well have existed in one of many different universes in which the universe just kept exploding and crunching, exploding and crunching. Interesting. But now that's been thrown out. Now hmm. they actually believe uh, that the end of our universe will be a much 
less positive experience. Uh, and it's often referred to as the big chill. And what it means is because we are continuing to accelerate and expanding, not the opposite. We're not coming together. We're actually going faster as we move apart. There will come a time when all those stars will have ejected pretty much everything they can and everything will get smaller and cooler. And we will continue to move so far apart from each other that everything will just kind of peter out and one light at a time will kind of go out until the universe is just this empty and barren void. Uh, And it's a much less romantic sense of what would happen to us, but uh, it's the current model and it's the one that actually does make the most sense based on observations. True, but this is also, we're talking billions and billions of years into the future. Oh, yeah. It's not like we got to worry about it. I mean, the the human race will be long, long extinct by the time that happens. It's going to be a long time. Don't worry, folks. We're going to kill ourselves before the universe does. Oh, most certainly. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Or, well, who knows? Maybe we'll evolve into some higher form of life. Nobody knows. Of course. Yeah. Well, that's actually a pretty concise description of the origin of the universe by modern standards. By modern standards, yeah. And I'm sure it'll change and evolve over time as well. Well, we talked a little bit about the origin of the universe in our very first episode. We talked about the myth uh, about the lotus flower. Yeah, the creation myth in Egypt, absolutely. Exactly. So, there you have it, folks. There you have it. Finally, the freaking wheel of history gave us something that... uh, that we could actually, you know, do a whole episode But, on. you know, not bad. Not yeah, bad, not considering bad. we just kind of winged it when it came to the topics. Yeah. Not really. We did a little bit of research. No, Nevertheless. <laughs> but, you know, I just realized... What? That uh, we finally have living up to our, uh, our, our description of the show. We've now talked about cheese in a can and the creation of the universe. Yeah, we're no longer liars. Now we just got to do the everything in between part. <laughs> <laughs> and everything in between. And that's the work in progress, folks. Well, Brian, thank you for bearing with me. Of I, course. I, as you can tell, I just, I'm still not feeling 100% here. Um, but this was a good episode. This was interesting. And this was actually a lot of fun. And listeners, if you had kind of a fun with uh, with the topic, kind of jumping around and doing a bunch of different things, uh, let us know. Give us some feedback on our website if you click on the listener feedback button. Uh, and feel free to uh, drop us a line uh, via our emails. Uh, and you can uh, reach me at thebrickmont at nerdonomy.com. Of course, I'm Brian at nerdonomy.com. And our Twitter handles are actually very similar. I'm Brian Moriarty. And I'm the Brickmont. So there you go. And, of course, our company Twitter handle is at Nerdonomy. Um, please go to our website, nerdonomy.com, where you can contact us. You can also see all of our means of communicating with our social media pages, subscribing to our podcast, of course. Uh, and do us a couple favors. We have a poll up on our Facebook pages right now. And please let us know uh, how it is that you're listening to Nerdonomy. It helps us to give a better understanding of how and where to focus our advertising going forward now that we're actually receiving donations. Uh, and we can we can do things like that, like actually fund advertising. Sure, of uh, course. And on the topic of donations, if you can, we would be so kind for you to... Uh, to please uh, contribute. And, you know, we actually would love for you to give us some suggestions on some different ways that we can encourage you to do it. So maybe some rewards or something that we could do. Uh, something simple. One, one idea that was suggested to us by a listener already uh, was to have somewhere in the Nerd Cave where every time somebody gives us a donation, uh, we can put your signature in or put your name in kind of a, a permanent place where you'll and always... A wall of fame, if you will. Yeah, and you'll always live with us here in the Nerd Cave. Another suggestion was to, uh, to give you a specialized shout-out on the show show maybe even have you record a quick audio bit and uh you know go ahead and let that uh, be known uh and then uh if you have other suggestions and ideas well send them our way absolutely uh, also folks if you like our podcast and want to get our podcast 
downloaded to your device automatically, you can subscribe to us through iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Oh, yeah, we're out right? there in the and, cosmos. And that's all I've got to say about that. Oh, Ryan, well, sir, thank I, you very much. This has been therapeutic for you, I think. You sound better than you did when we started tonight. I actually, it, it, it did give me a little more energy than I was expecting it to. Now I'm starting to come down off the high, though. I'm starting to feel a little bad. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a little tired, too. Well, folks, thanks uh, for listening. Stay nerdy. And, of course, we'll see you next time. The same nerd time, same nerd channel, nerdonomy.com. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.